This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Ulysses Owens Jr. His jazz career spans 20 years and includes names such as Wynton Marsalis, Christian McBride, and Mulgrew Miller. He is also a band leader in his own right, heading up the group Generation Y, whose latest record, A New Beat, will be released January 19th. Ulysses was among the first students to attend the jazz program at Juilliard and is now a professor there. He has also made some recent waves with two videos on Drumeo, one playing Nirvana's In Bloom as he hears it for the first time, and another illustrating the building blocks of jazz drumming. We have tons of Patreon content for you to check out, and you can get access to it all for a buck a month. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer for video lessons, transcriptions, and bonus interview content from our former guests. Once again, a donation of $1 a month gets you access to everything at patreon.com slash working drummer. Ulysses is a great resource for understanding the tradition and history of jazz drumming and all of its practitioners, and it makes him the perfect spokesman on a platform like Drumeo. It's important to understand that every drummer is the sum of a bunch of other drummers, jazz or otherwise, and he illustrates that and much more in this talk. So let's get to it. Here's Ulysses Owens Jr. You're, you're at your parents' house right now? Yeah, so so I don't know if you know, I live in Florida now. Well, I knew you were from there, but I didn't know you... Yeah, so I moved, yeah, I moved back 2019. I made my home base here. Uh-huh. So I have a, a, a nice place on the water, but I basically, when I needed to start, you know, everybody had to start recording yeah. and stuff for the pandemic. So I had this little shed that I had been using since I was like 16, and then I was like, man, I can turn, it's like a little 200 square foot place so man i've literally in the last three years i've turned it into an entire like multi-production studio wow uh where i can film i can record uh i can do you know whether it's radio stuff you know whatever um so anyway man so i i've kind of been doing things in phases so i do that so i have my uh studio here with uh my folks which also is great for safety because i travel a lot mm-hmm. and uh so they kind of make sure that stuff is cool and then i have my own place and then you know i commute every week with uh juilliard right uh, so that was, was that was my next question like yeah. you're you're flying yeah. back and forth once a week yeah <laughs> yeah because i have so i have a two-year-old kid yeah and uh and i really wanted to make sure that i'm part of his life his mom and i aren't together we co-parent 
Uh, but yeah, man, so my schedule goes like I, I when school is back in, I fly up Tuesday morning, I teach Tuesday afternoon, hang Wednesday, teach Thursday afternoon, fly back Thursday night. So, yeah, because I don't you know, I don't really enjoy um, New York in the same way. To me, it's not the same city that it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's coming back, but it's not what it used to be. And then also, man, you know, I'm older. I mean, I lived in New York exclusively for, you know, 19 years. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, thankfully made some great contacts and stuff like that. And I'm still working whatever there. But then. Man, as I started doing more work here in Florida and I have a foundation here with my family and all that, I'm like, I like waking up and seeing sunshine and <laughs> seeing the water. And, yeah. you know, and when I when I take my kid out, you know, we have a nice car and we can go, you know, it's like civilization. Yeah. You know? so yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, bro. So when so, you say so it's a hybrid, when you say New York isn't what it used to be, I'm, I'm assuming you mean, you know, what it used to be before the pandemic. But are, are you yes. referring to back further than that? <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, for me, it's before the pandemic. Um, so when I moved to New York, I moved to New York uh, 2001. Uh, and literally September 11th happened three weeks after I was in New York. Right. So right. Uh, I, I always laugh and say I've seen just about every catastrophe because uh, I was there for the blackout. I was there for the, the earthquake. I've been, you know, the flood, it all. the flood, you know, Hurricane Sandy, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but but before the pandemic, there was this sense of community. First of all, uh, all of these musicians, we all lived there. Like, you know, like I, you know, Kendrick Scott lived on, you know, I think he still does like 143rd. I was on 170th, you know, all these cats were, you know, Melissa Aldana was a block away. Like, so there was this community of all of us hanging after the pandemic. Most of us all left, you know, I was like, okay, I'm officially just gonna, I was already in Florida, but I was like, now nah, I'm going to officially be a Floridian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mark Carey went to Delaware. Bunch of cats, Ben Williams, Sands, Christian Sands, all went to L.A. So there's people there now, but it's like a new generation. Yeah, yeah. So I think the generation that I knew that I kind of came up with, that's the generation that is kind of not there in the same way. You know? Yeah, and I mean, it, it just speaks to how, you know, like I've never lived in New York. Um, I've spent some time there. I'm about to spend a few more days there in, in uh, January, but... Oh, nice. Like, it, it's, it seems like a young man's game, especially for musicians, especially for jazz musicians. Like, you've got to have the energy and the hunger and the, uh, you know, the, the zero fucks given about a lot of things. <laughs> To, yeah, uh, to, you know, for, yeah. for New York to be uh, a good place for you. And then, you know, some mm-hmm. some if you get older, some personalities um, just thrive in a place like New York, just like some personalities thrive in a place like L.A. But I, you know, I so relate to what you're saying, like you kind of get to a certain age and you're like, I, I need a different uh, lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and also to my, my work, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about. As I'm point, like my my workflow changed, right? Like when yeah, I lived yeah. in New York for for 18, 19 years, I was primarily a sideman. I was working with you know some of the top jazz bands. I was you know playing 250, 280 nights a year. Mm-hmm. Like that was my thing. Now I you know I'm an author. I have a production studio. You know I'm teaching. I'm you know producing. You know like so. Um, I, like I, I I was telling my dad earlier today. I was like. Literally in Florida, I have a nice place on the water. I have a full studio, have a car, have all that. If I was in New York to have all those things, it would. I, I, there's no way I could afford it. You yeah. know, I tried to have it like when I, I had a really nice two bedroom in 
Washington Heights. And, you know, I had like my second bedroom was sort of my studio space. But, you know, you're in a, a unit, you know, with 40 other people, yeah. you know, uh, living in the building. So I think what living in Florida has allowed me to do is really like stretch out mm-hmm. and truly have like the spaces that I need to have versus um, when I was in New York, it was like my apartment and then I'm going to various studios and, you know, all these different institutions. And so uh, I kind of can create my own little world here. Yeah, I like it for sure. Um, my uh, my wife and I lived in L.A. Uh, previously. I, I lived there for five years. She lived there for almost 10. Um, and we moved to Atlanta at the beginning of 2016. Mm. And I, I, I'm wondering if you had the same experience, like moving, you know, after so long in New York, moving to back to yeah. Florida, you know, we, we hadn't been in Atlanta like a month and we looked back at LA and we were like, what the fuck were we thinking? Like, how did we do it? <laughs> oh, bro, bro, I, I, so, bro, so funny you had that. So I had the, uh, and you're, you lived in Atlanta. So this, this word will make sense to you. I literally move home, get my apartment, and then I was in the parking lot of Publix. Yeah, yeah. Which you know about. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and I remember going into Publix, and I think at that time, I, pre-inflation, I took like $60, $70 with me, and I bought all these groceries. Then I hopped in my car because I bought a car so I moved home, and I was able to get on the elevator, lug my stuff into my apartment. I mean, it was just so easy, and I remember being like, wow, this is how normal and civil life should be. You know, like going, like, like you get in the car, you go to the store, you get your groceries, you come home as opposed to New York. It's like you walk 10 blocks, you know, you get to the Trader Joe's, then you got to hail down a taxi, you know, yep. and then you get out the taxi and you got to tip somebody to hold the door open to get, you know, just yep. like, like it was funny. I told when I, my dad, when I got home and I needed him to help me and he, he finished helping me do something. And I said, oh, here, dad, here's 15 bucks. He said, Man, you don't have to tip me to help you. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> those big cities, you just get used to like having to pay for everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I see. Um what was it like coming back to like so are you back in Jacksonville now? Yeah, so I'm in Jacksonville. So, you know, it's the ho- it's the holiday. So typically once that holiday happens, man, I try to really be um here, you know, for, for my son and kind of get into dad mode, like I always say I go into daddy daycare, wake up, take him to school, pick him up, you know, all that. But, um, yeah, being in Jacksonville is, 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 it's great from a living perspective. Like, as I said, you know, all the things I've explained, it's really great to live when it comes to artistic it's challenging because, mm-hmm. um, the community is not as open. Um, it was great during the pandemic because a lot of folks, were here, you mm-hmm. know, like they came and hung out here. So it was kind of like a mini New York here. Mm-hmm. But once the pandemic left and everybody kind of went back to their jobs, it's tough. And then obviously politically, it can be tough because mm-hmm. of just how things are. You know, and I, that's part of my foundation. We help uh, particularly, you know, children of color and we give them access to the musical theater and the arts and, and really kind of creating equity, an equitable space for them mm-hmm. to have a great education. So from the political side and artistic side, it is challenging from everything else. It's great. Um, but that's why I have my Juilliard gig. So when I want to feel like, you know, the artist and all that, that sort of get that part of me fulfilled, I just hop on the plane and I'm, you know, in New York and I go hang at Dizzy's or go down to the Vanguard or, you know, I still have my, my, you know, studios that I work at. So I have this hybrid life where when I'm here, I'm not really worried about being creative. 
uh, outside of my own space. And in New York, I kind of still keep a lot of my creativity there. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so you were like, uh, you were part of the inaugura uh, uh, inaugural class at Juilliard, yeah. like when, when they first started offering a jazz major, correct? Yeah, so yeah. They, yeah. That was in 2001. Um, and like you said, like, you know, 9-11 happened like three weeks after you got into town, which I can't even yeah. fathom. Um, yeah. But I thought the world was going to end. Dude, we all did. We all did. And I mean, it, it kind of did. <laughs> the world as we knew it anyway. Um, but uh, like... Talk about, um, you know, because you're you're a professor at Juilliard now, which how long have you been doing that gig? Seven years now. Co okay, so you're teaching drums and small group and... Yep. Okay. And, and actually, I'm adding another course, which I, I can talk about later. Uh, I'm excited. We have another course that I'm going to co-teach uh, actually starting next semester. So What, what course is that? Um, it's uh, called Church as a Conservatory because um, we, we, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've interviewed drummers. Who come from the gospel church sure and one of my colleagues dr fadara hadley she's brilliant brilliant she's an ethnomusicologist and she sort of coined this term or this statement that like for us but particularly in the black community church was really our conservatory uh -huh. musically because it's where all of us got exposed to music and so that's what we're really going to unpack in this course and we're going to focus on probably about 30 years uh, of gospel music and how like pretty much from the late 60s gospel music to kind of like late 90s, how that has influenced so much of popular mainstream music. Sure. Um, both directly and indirectly. Right. So anyway, so that's what that, that course is going to be about that. Well, this leads perfectly into something I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, you um, you you come from the gospel church, you come from that musical yeah. background. Um, as you've developed as a musician, um, and maybe even as it pertains to like the nuts and bolts of the drums specifically, yeah. um what are what are some of the like what what are some of the things about that music and those roots that you have that you keep with you in the jazz world? Um, yeah. And also, what are some of the things that you've had to leave behind in order to like fully yeah. uh, delve into the jazz world? Sure. So sidebar, there's actually a, a cool interview I just uh, did last night, which you should check out if you get a chance. I did with Jamison Ross. Oh wow! Uh, on my show, and it, I just posted it on my Instagram because Jamison and I grew up in the same town that's right we he's both from there up, yeah we, yeah we both grew up as church boys he's like five years younger than me so that would be i i think you would appreciate that we go into a whole the first 20 minutes of the interview is just us talking about that yeah but i want to answer your, your your other question first which is yes i was part of the inaugural class at juilliard uh first african-american drummer to to enter the school jazz drummer to enter the school uh it was 18 of us um program was sort of the baby of winter marsalis uh, and was the creation of him and Dr. Joseph Polisi, who was the then president, because Juilliard, uh, apparently there's this kind of unspoken tradition that every president brings in a new area, arts area. So Polisi bought in jazz. Uh, the person before him, I think, bought in dance and you know, so, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that, that was a whole culture shock. Like we can completely, we could talk about that at some point, but that's important because I got exposed to jazz when I was like 13, but I got serious about it at 16. I, I came to New York to see family because I knew that I wanted to go to college here. And I was able to snag an interview with John Riley mm -hmm. at Manhattan School of Music because I thought that's where I wanted to go. And so um, so John was so gracious. This is pre-social you know, media, pre-email and all that. 
And he, you know, he said, hey, man, if you're interested in coming to the school, why don't you come visit? So I visited and, you know, of course, he he asked me, he said, man, sit down on the kit, and play for me. And this is back when I'm just a gospel drummer trying to play jazz. So mm-hmm. this kind of ties into the question you asked me. So I played for him and he says, OK, he says, you sound good. He says, but you don't sound like a jazz drummer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, what does that mean? He says, you just you don't have the language. You don't you know. And that was kind of he was very kind. But in other words, and now back, you know, uh, now being older and I now see a lot of these students. The big thing, I didn't have the touch. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have the lang- the bebop language, but I didn't have the touch. So uh, he was like, all right. So he, I said, well, what do I do? He says, go get Miles Davis's album called, or called Milestones. Philly Joe Joe's is the drummer. I went and got that album, and the rest was history. And, and that was kind of my thing. So to answer your question more specifically, a couple things. When you play gospel music, the time is ca- kept between the hi-hat the snare and the bass drop. Mm-hmm. So it is all about that pocket. Me and Jameson, we've been talking about that. It's like, are you in the pocket? You got that that lock, right? Right. Well, with jazz, that that pocket, all of that feeling from the hi-hat snare and bass transfers to the ride cymbal, mm-hmm. to that spangle lane pattern. And that the way that you get that lock, you got to create that with the, the spangle lane. The next thing is, you know, you go from grooving to now you got to open up and have a vocabulary around the kit. So you got to have a real relationship with the snare drum, then a relationship with the toms, and then a relationship with all of them together, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's his that's his own thing. And then the touch dynamics, you know, you go from just kind of as typically as a gospel gospel drummer, our dynamic range is from forte to fortissimo. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jazz drummer, you got to have the range. And then I would say the last piece, without getting too heady, um, is you have to learn how to play with multiple tools. So you got to learn how to play with brushes and mallets and all kind of stuff. And then I think um, within that, you have to have an understanding about music. Like, you know, you got to learn how to sing the melody. You got to know chord changes. You got to understand arranging and composition. So what I think about gospel to jazz, being becoming a jazz musician made me a complete musician. And it allowed me to tap into improvisation of creating my own sound. Mm-hmm. That's something that I did not learn with gospel. With gospel, there's a prearranged arrangement and, and set of music, and, and and then there's the worship element. And your goal is just to tie it, kind of tie into that. So those are some of the differences. Right, I right. I, I would imagine there's a sort of isn't isn't there kind of a um, an in the moment aspect to gospel music and gospel drumming. It used to be. So I always tell people. <laughs> so I tell people there's there there we have to make a definitive uh, statement, which is there's pre pro tools gospel. <laughs> I love I love that you coined this term. Or pre or, or pre Ableton <laughs> right, gospel, right? right. <laughs> because and 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 that and God rest his soul, you know, folks like Aaron, um, you know, and and you know, folks like Gerald Hayward and all them like that generation like of gospel drummer that's like pretty much over 40, we grew up where gospel music was a B3 organ player and a drummer. Then, you know, because this was like er, like 80s. So it was like B3 organ and a drummer and a pianist. Mm-hmm. And then it became B3 organ and a drummer. Then it became B3 organ and a drummer and a bassist. Then it then lead, then keyboards, and then it just started to grow. And then you start bringing in the sequencers, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, but to your point, the overlap in pre-Pro Tools Church was something called testimony service mm. where somebody would just get up, you know, it was like Sunday night service and, and they, they would have like a leader and 
and they say, you know, all right, testimony service is open. Somebody can come down and tell what God did for you. And so you'd have a woman just hop up out of her chair and she just starts singing a song. <laughs> and so then, no, seriously, you know, she, you know, sister get up and she say, you know, I just want to give, you know, thanks to God for whatever. Uh, and those who know the song, join in with me. Uh, Jesus, I'll never forget what you've done for me. And then I hear this on the drum. Jesus, I'll never forget. And then the organ picks up the key and then we off. Right. That's literally what happened. That That's testimony service. And you have two hours of that where she gets up singing something, you know, medium. Then you'd have somebody get up and say, oh, devil been beating me up all weekend. You know, he's been, he, he's been beating me up. So <laughs> I just, I just got to sing something to feel better. And then they would sing like a, like more of like a blues, you uh-huh. know, like, you know, so that overlap of improvisation with jazz is very similar and symbiotic because same thing, you go to a, a jam session at a bebop club yeah. and somebody get up and, uh, you know, and then you start swinging, and you know, off. so there is, there is that thing, but I think it's not as, uh, it's not as much of a connectivity because now cats are like, Oh, before they go to service, they're programming two days on Ableton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. You know, so it's, 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 I think we miss that spontaneity. It's so. funny how you describe um, this, this dynamic in, in church, because like there's, there's obviously a translation into the jazz world where you're just sort of putting something together in the moment. But it, it made me think immediately of, you know, your, your Drumeo video playing the Nirvana song. And, you know, you're, you're one of a few drummers that have done this recently. And, and I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of drummers are rightly impressed by this, just being able to hear a song once or like, you know, create a drum part for a song in the moment as you're hearing it. Um, and like, so it, it is impressive. But on the other hand, like you've been doing that since you were 13, like every Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, bro, so what's funny to me, I'm glad you brought this up, that that track has gotten me so much uh, uh, love and also controversy because the I've got all these people like I have friends of mine and musicians they've been like going to bat in the comment section. I'm like y'all leave it alone because you have some of these cats who are like he heard it before and I'm like dude I I've, I've been studying Philly Joe Jones for 20 years. I haven't been thinking about Dave Grohl. Right. <laughs> like all no no disrespect but I'm sitting up here still trying to describe or uh transcribe Max Roach. That ain't got nothing on in bloom. Right. right? <laughs> so right. so there are people in the comments being like you heard it before he had to hear and I'm like no what they did to me at Drumio is what I grew up doing. I've been playing and playing drums since I was two, and I've been playing in church since I was like five. Right. So that so what I just described to you earlier about what Sister Ruth May did, that's essentially what Drumio did to me. Yes. So my that same processing is what I did. So they played it, you know, and I was like, oh wow, this is interesting. So I could hear the halftime. I'm like, okay, I hear the boom, 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 bop, the boom, boom. I could hear it in how he was playing the bass. But then I got confused on the bridge is where I went into double time uh, <laughs> because I thought that's what it should have been. But anyway, I said that to say, man, it was like, I've been doing that my whole life. And you take any other gospel musician and they've been doing the same thing. Yes. You know? Yeah. And I think, you know, a, a lot of people miss the point of that sort of video. Um, I, I, I don't think the point of that sort of video is to impress the shit out of people and and make them think that you've heard the song before or just like you know show off and say look how fucking psychic i am um i think that like the the muscle the muscle that you used in that video 
is is not about having heard that song before. It's not about having being familiar with Nirvana. It's about it's it's a muscle that you've been exercising since you were five. It's about listening to music and honing your instincts on the drums. Like everything you played in that video was instinctual and it had nothing to do with whether or not you've heard that song before. It has to do with a lifetime of like building these listening and playing instincts. And some of your instincts in that song were exactly what the drum part in the song is. And other instincts that you had, like you mentioned, going to double time in the chorus or whatever, like it is not the drum part in that song, but somebody watching that could be like, oh, wow, I never thought of feeling it that way. He felt that's what his instinct told him. So it's just like, I I think people sort of put too much stock in shit like that and just miss the point of the exercise. Well, they missed the point because they have an agenda, right? And so, like, <laughs> for instance, um, for instance, there was one comment, and I, I made myself not respond to it, but you have it, you know, you have it on your podcast that you could share that I thought was very disrespectful. And so, because you know, one person was like, "How could he have not heard Nirvana?" And I actually responded to them. I said, "If I start playing gospel and R and B records, there's a whole lot of y'all that will be hearing shit for the first time too, Absolutely. right?" Absolutely. And so then somebody responded, and they were like, "But." But I mean, Nirvana is culture. And I'm like, actually, it's not. I grew up as an African-American boy in the South in a sheltered environment in gospel church where rock music or metal music was not God to them. Right. right? So, you know, so it was not part of my culture. My culture was John P. Key, James Cleveland and Clark Sisters and a whole bunch of stuff. Wherever you grew up, your culture may have interlapped or or, uh, intersected with Nirvana. So to say that you know, let's say half of America grew up with Nirvana, then and now all of a sudden that's the blueprint for culture is completely uh, disingenuous and also disrespectful. Yeah. Because there are some folks that grew up, like I know some people in church, they never listen to secular music. Like my mom grew up in a generation where there are folks that literally never listen to secular music. Mm-hmm. So I think what to you, you, you said it best, which is the goal for Drumio is to show and I think Jared, the owner, talked about this, was like, their goal was to take these specialists, like I'm a specialist in jazz, and throw me into this other pool and let people see what my process is of using all the things that I know in my jazz pool and how how and if it can actually apply to this other thing, mm-hmm. you know, and versus people being like, why don't you know it? Where my thing is, what if I sat, you know, Dave, what if I p- sat Dave Grawl down and play Jack DeJohnette Pitcher's album. Right. Completely avant-garde. Dave would be like, what? Yeah. Right? See what so Dave comes up with. <laughs> right. So I think people, instead of saying, wow, this is really cool to see Ulysses go through this exploration, it becomes, well, why doesn't he know this? And the reality is there are a lot of things that we all don't know, and we can't start judging, you know, and that's probably, that's where we are as a society, where everybody's starting to have this dissonance because we're saying what should be, and you just can't do that because everybody grew up different. Right, right. Man, I would I would love to see Dave Grohl <laughs> play. I me too. Shit. <laughs> and and I I say that seriously, like because it's I you yeah. know I think it's it's sort of the opposite side of the uh, just little science experiment that Drumio does because like yeah. you're you're not the only jazz guy from a gospel background that they've sort of right. thrown something at. They did it with Larnell, um, yeah. and maybe one or two others. Like, um, but yeah, like to you know it would it would be interesting and cool to watch Dave yeah. Grohl's brain process that music yeah. and come up with some Dave Grohl drumming that he you know <laughs> um Exactly. I mean I th- I think it's I think it's such a brilliant series because 
I think if if they keep it going, it could be cool to just see the world's switch, you know, like see, you know, it like or put on a gospel record for Dave Grohl. Yeah. You know, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, and I think that's why Dromeo is so brilliant, because they come up with these concepts and it allows you to, to understand more, not just about the artist, but kind of about music. watched a, a good bit of um, the the other video yeah. that you've done with Drumio, which is this hour long yeah. sort of deep you know deep dive into jazz drumming, and um, I'm I'm so glad that this exists now, <laughs> and I just want to thank you for doing it because um, I think there's uh, I think there's a lot of um, sort of misrepresentation or you know caricature versions of jazz drumming all over the internet. Um, and I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with, you know, what jazz drumming actually is, get the wrong idea about what its objectives are, what it's supposed to sound like. And you in like in this video, you just stripped it down to the studs <laughs> and, and re reduced it to its most um, uh, essential elements both in your explanations and and your sort of playing in your demonstrations. Um, so I, I just want to talk about the fact that like you started with the ride symbol, like, and you mentioned it earlier, like that, you know, all the pocket that you get with kick, snare and hi-hat and other forms of music, like all of that pocket has to exist on the ride symbol in jazz drumming. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, what's funny about that is I got, you know, I got bad feet or, commentary from that right because people you know because i remember uh again dromeo and their brilliance they literally opened up the clip with one little thing i said which was jazz or drumming begin with jazz which is true right mm -hmm. and so yes. that people were like all in uproar about it like well what about you know bugle corps and all that and i'm like dude if you go back to the late 1800s and early 1900s when the invention of the drum set happened because i did all these interviews with Harlan Riley, who's from new orleans he talked about literally there are certain drummers who invented pieces of drum equipment that actually their patented patent was stolen from william f ludwig because he used to ride the mm -hmm. river boats and he would see some of these people playing and he stole the idea like the first cat that built the low boy or the cat that built the bass drum like and he just went and formalized it because he had the resources whatever so I say that to say if you've actually studied jazz drumming or you've actually studied early drumming history, it's a non-brain, it's a no-brainer to know that. But oftentimes right. what we have to your absolute point, we're living in a time in 2023 where we have a lot of people because of their internet that think that they are uh, authorities because they have great video equipment, they're articulate, and they have the ability to talk, not realizing that talking isn't rooted in any kind of reality or truth. And the one thing mm -hmm. that I have to say about jazz drumming, and I hope it doesn't come across as offensive, 
But to study jazz drumming, you have to go back to the beginning of history. It does. You don't have to do that for any other type of drumming, right? Like if hmm. you're rock drummer, okay, you're gonna start in what? Maybe the late fifties, early sixties, right? If you're studying mm-hmm. funk, you're gonna start in the seventies, you know, or late sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you studying, you know, and then maybe like Latin music, maybe. But again, but jazz drumming is like Baby Dodds. That's early nineteen hundreds. Who else is doing that? Right. right. No other genre right. can do that because those genres came after this was right. <laughs> you know. Yes. So I say that to say, like, that was my thing for uh, Drumio when they approached me, because there was which I won't mention names, but there was a jazz uh, episode that they had already produced with another drummer. And it created quite a bit of uproar. One, because that drummer and I, you know, I know him well. Uh, he's not part of the jazz community. He's not. He's a great drummer, mm-hmm. but he's not a jazz drummer, and he's not part of the jazz community. And he misrepresented it. And when Drumio called me, we had a whole conversation about it. And I said to them, I said, if we're if we're gonna do this, I got to do this because the elders the, the elders are looking at me, and they, mm-hmm. they you know I talk I called up you know folks and talked to them, and they're like, all right, bro, like if you gonna you gonna do Drumio, take the truth to them. And so mm-hmm. that's why when they hit me up, I was like, first thing I was like, Rod Symbol, Kenny Clark. Kenny Clark was the person yep. that in, he invented the uh, the pattern on the Rod Symbol. He didn't invent the pattern, but he's the first person to transfer it from the hi-hat there. So, yeah, that was my goal. My goal was to just like to, to, to quiet all the noise and say, here is the unadulterated truth about this art form. And as a person who has been a student of it uh, for 20 years and a person that has been playing with the elders. So I'm not just some kid that got a nice camera and, and you know, trying to build my influence. or ch- No, I'm a jazz drummer. I've been one since I was 16 years old. So, and I've gone right. through that journey. And I think that's why Jermiel felt comfortable working with me because I've also gone through the journey of teaching because I had to learn and teach myself. So, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. I'm really grateful to have that opportunity. I'm going back um, actually in two weeks. And we're going to do a whole course. I don't know if you know about it. We're we're doing a larger course, um, which is going to be I, I, well, I can't release the title, but it's going to essentially be teaching drummers who want to learn what is jazz drumming. Mm-hmm. And so like it'll be part of their subscription thing. Yeah, it's going to be part of the subscription thing. And I'm really excited because uh, we're introducing some new models where not only is it the course, um, I, I don't think they'll be mad at me saying this. I'll reveal a little bit. Um, but we're going to have a live component where I'm going to actually coach drummers. So I'll have yeah. the, I'll have, cause I told them, I was like, if we're going to do this right, we've got to do it in a way that we give the information, but jazz is an oral tradition. So it can't just be, all right, here's a video. Happy, happy listening. It has to be, here's the video. And then I physically get to see them and give them commentary mm-hmm. on their development because that's what I got and still get. Right. Right. Um, I think that's that's so important because, um, like you said, it is an oral tradition. There's, um, you know, there, there's an extent to which it's been written down and formalized and codified. And um, there's there's a lot of, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of ways in which that's a good thing. Um, but I think especially when it comes to like written resources or notated notated stuff, um, it's either hard for people, it's hard for beginners to f- figure out how to get their foot in the door with that stuff. Some of it ignores the fact that you have to listen to this shit a lot yes. in order to be able to play it right. 
Um, and, you know, like with a, with a resource, like, you know, uh, a, a book like um, Advanced Techniques for the Modern Drummer, like the Chapin book, that's considered like one of the Bibles for learning jazz drumming. And in many ways it is, but you kind of need help uh, to utilize that resource to its fullest potential. If you're just kind of going at it with just what's notated and just what's in that book, like you'll get somewhere, but that's, it's kind of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. I mean, the, the first, the first thing, and I, and as a person who has two books, the thing that's missing, and I made sure I put, put it, put that in my books. The thing that's missing in all of this stuff is this music was not built methodically from a book. Right. So to say mm-hmm. to a drummer, to learn jazz drumming, you need to go check out Jim Chapin book. No, to learn jazz drumming, go listen to Freddie the Freeloader on Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. That is, listening to my man, Jimmy Cobb, that is a lesson yeah. in jazz drumming. Because you hear the sound, you hear it in context of the music, and then you say, oh my God, like that's what I need to, to feel like. Then, once you know what, it, that is the Bible, right? Then once you know what it's supposed yeah. to feel like, then you say, okay, if I'm still having disconnects with how to make it feel, okay, here's a book to break it down. So if, you, if you're, you know, because there's different type of learners. Um, I'm more of an oral learner. So if, if you're more of a visual learner, then you do need Jim Chapin's book. And then it can break it down and you can say, all right, you know, go shed page 25. But I think what's happening mm-hmm. now is <clears throat> we're moving out all the oral teachers. Because they don't know how to, um, they don't know how to codify it into a thirty-second video, and and right. now you've got the art form, which is why I'm very blessed and thankful to be teaching. You got the art form now being given and disseminated by people who have no experience of playing a gig. Like that was my my issue with uh, <clears throat> the person that they used before. I said I've been in New York twenty years and I've never seen this person play a gig at a club. So how <laughs> how can he tell me? Or tell any of us yeah. what jazz drumming is. And I've never seen him play at small. I've never seen him play, you know, at Vanguard. I've never seen him play at Smoke. I've never seen him play at Cornelius Street or at the 55 bar. Just like in the rock, right. like if you've never done the warp tour or if you've never played in a garage band, you know what I mean? How you can't all of a sudden be the authority on grunge, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's like so I, yeah. I think, so I think we have to be careful that as things are becoming more academic that we don't need from the place of academia, but academia is really just meant to be a support to the oral tradition and, and assist people in the deciphering process. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I interviewed Joe Farnsworth a few (laughs) months ago, uh, and, you know, listening to his playing, like it is, it is so ride centric. Like every, you know, every great, Every great jazz drummer's drumming is fairly ride centric, but with him, it's just like, you know, the absolute paramount. Yeah. And he told this story of um, he was at the Vanguard uh, and he was just like, you know, chit chatting with um, one of the big names he's played with. It was a, a sax player. Mm. And I think he, it was Probably in George his younger Coleman years. And, yes, I think it was. And, and um, he was, he just kind of asked George, like, you know, what, what do, band leaders want out of the drums like he didn't put it that simply but he was just kind of pumping george for that kind of information and kind of blue came on the radio and he he just pointed up to the speaker and listened to that ride symbol those quarter notes and he was like that is all 
anybody wants. <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I, you know, Mulgrew, you know, when I, well, uh, the, the other part of the story I didn't tell you about when September 11th happened, that was also the day I met my mentor, and that's Mulgrew Miller. Mulgrew came in to teach a, a class and, and to give clarity. Mulgrew is a, was a great pianist. He was the pianist for Art Blakey, Jazz Messengers in the 80s, and he was also in Tony Williams's trio um, with Ira right. Coleman. So he knew a lot about drumming. And um, and that was the thing Mulgrew Miller told me. He said, Ulysses, if you learn how to make that rod cymbal dance, your phone will never stop ringing a day in your life. <laughs> and so that so that is the philosophy that I bring to teaching. I don't say, you know, check out excerpts three, whatever. It's like, listen to Lou Hayes on a Cedar Rock, Walton record live at Boomers, the way he makes that thing dance. If you can do that, you'll mm-hmm. work. You know, so right. so we have right. we have to bring it back to we have to bring it back to the masters, which keeps us humble, keeps us honest, and it's also a boundary point of this is the this is your north star, this is what you're reaching for. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Right, and it, like there are so many examples um, of being able to um, make the ride cymbal dance, and I think it's it's important for drummers to find the one that lights them up, find the one that, you know, like when you hear a drummer, when you hear a drummer's certain interpretation, you're like, oh shit, I want to sound like that. Yeah. Um, So I just, I'll challenge that. I I agree. I agree that drummers should find the one that quote unquote lights them up. What they really, so yes, I think when you start talking about your, your own evolution of sound, like, you know, I could, I could point to three or four different cymbal beats that, make up the Ulysses Owens Jr. cymbal beat sound. However, to mm-hmm. get to that, you need to go through all the sounds, right? So, yeah. so, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure you agree with me, but that's where, you know, in my teaching, I'm like, you start with Kenny Clark and then you go Kenny, Art Taylor, Billy Higgins, you know, you just, you just follow the, the, the timeline. And then when you look back at, you know, from 19, cause I think that record for, uh miles davis uh walking which is one of the first records when kenny clark was recorded playing with that beat i mm-hmm. think that record was like late 40s like maybe 48 you go from 48 to maybe about mid you know mid to late 60s and you take you know close to 30 years of ride cymbal playing then you could say okay after studying all of it and learning all the different patterns all the different variations then to your direction your point what are the ones that really resonate with you and then and then your your thing becomes an evolution uh, of, of, mm-hmm. of all of those different players. So you think it's important to start at the beginning Absolutely. and work forward chronologically? Absolutely, because if, if you if, so, it's the same thing. If like if we're going to talk about cooking, any any of my chef friends, they always talk about they have to go back to learning French cuisine and the basics mm-hmm. of that, right? And then you go back to like early cuisine of American, you know, whatever. It's like everything we study you have to go back to the beginning if you all of a sudden which happens if you start with elvin jones it's like elvin's great but elvin is an evolution of all these other cats you you start with tony tony is an evolution of roy roy haynes right you know and alan dawson you know you start with uh Marcus Gilmore, he's an evolution of his of his father and Rashid Ali and you know all these all these you know Eric Harlan like you start with me I'm a reiteration of Lewis Nash Jeff Tain like so if you don't go <laughs> if you don't go in the beginning 
then if you start in the if, well, first let me finish finish my statement. Like starting in the beginning allows you to just catch everybody. Versus, mm-hmm. you know, I I started with Philly Joe Jones, which was close to the beginning, but he wasn't the beginning. So it right. was a good starter uh, point. But eventually, if I want to be informed, fully informed, then I got to go and do that. You know, I got to check it out. So I think that's why the music is shifting. And it's also why you have people who are misinformed. You know, like, for instance, the, the example we keep talking about, he's a huge Buddy Rich fan. And I grew up listening yeah. to Buddy. Buddy is one of the greatest drummers through just jazz drumming. He's one of the greatest drummers to ever exist. But drumming did not start mm-hmm. with Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich was right. in, influenced by Buddy Gilmore, who he stole his name from. <laughs> Buddy Gilmore <laughs> was an African-American drummer, brilliant, like vaudevillian type of drummer from, I want to say, like the early 20s. And he uh, used to tour uh, even like during that era of like James Reese Europe, like those like those like early pioneers. And but they said he was a star. He was like he was his own thing. And so Buddy <clears throat> Rich and I think there's even some interviews where Buddy talks about it. He grew up as a kid hearing Buddy Gilmore. And right. And Buddy like Buddy Rich was a vaudevillian. Like exactly. his family was exactly. in that world. Exactly. So, yeah. again, just even something that simple as this guy who has become larger than life, Buddy Rich, knowing where he even was influenced puts everything in perspective. So I think that like, you know, you know, there's a Bible verse, there's nothing new under the sun. And I think the more Mm -hmm. we understand that, then when we come and make our presentation, uh, we're more humble. Like for instance, when I came and did my thing, I was like, we, I'm going to play some brushes. Cause how are you going to talk about dad's Mm -hmm. drumming and you never whip out a pair of brushes? (laughs) You know? So that's why the guys were like, Oh, we, you know, like uh, Brandon and Jerry, they were like, yes, yes. I was like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to do it. Put, let's put on a Hank Jones record, drummerless, and I'm gonna just stir and play some brushes. That's jazz drumming. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. So, but that I, but is I, jazz but drumming. I, but I only know that because I've I've taken the journey and 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 studied. interesting you you bring up buddy um because i uh i interviewed i've interviewed peter erskine a couple of times um, nice yeah and he uh we, we got into this conversation about buddy and and big band drumming and he was like uh i, I mean I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase what he said but basically what he said is you know it's it's almost it's almost like as amazing as buddy is buddy is amazing just full stop but it's it's almost a disservice to big band drumming that he became sort of the blueprint for big band drumming Yes, because what buddy rich did in his band was a heightened reality of 
the rest of the big band drumming and the big band music that has ever gone on. And, and Peter Erskine was like, if you want to look at like a, a true blueprint for what big band drumming should be, it would be somebody like Mel Lewis, who is, uh, you know, not <laughs> like not a flashy, not a particularly flashy drummer. Um, but I, I think the same way about, uh, you know, Neil Peart and how Neil Peart is held up as a paragon of rock drumming and prog rock drumming, and rightfully so. But if you think you can take what Neil Peart did and apply it to a wedding band playing Sweet Home Alabama, like, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can't. Yeah. So I, all this to say, I think this, this is what you've done in your Drumeo video is to bring jazz drumming down to earth and explain in accessible terms what it is really about. Yeah, no, and I, I first of all, I agree completely with you. Um, I agree with Peter. I love that statement. That buddy, it's like somebody saying, oh my God, I want to I want to learn how to play basketball. And they're like, great, I'm going to go take you to a LeBron James game. It's like, no. Right. Like, you just need to go, like, you need to go to, like, whoever his coach was or not even just his coach, just go to the local YMCA right. and check out, because the art of basketball is a communal game that you don't have to learn, like, this is a rock, this is rock star stuff here. Um, I, the reason why I look the way I look when you said Mel Lewis, I think that people often use Mel Lewis as an example of simplistic big band drumming. And to me, there's so many other better examples. Hmm. Uh, Sonny Payne. Yeah, you know, sure, Harold absolutely. Dole. I yep. mean, like, like, there's so many, like, by the time you get to Mel Lewis, Mel Lewis is what, late 60s, early 70s? Mm -hmm. Like, there was so much great <clears throat> big band drumming that happened. You know, I mean, even Frankie Dunlap, I mean, Art Blakey, I mean, all, the, I mean, and so it, it, it kind of, it, I love Mel Lewis. And, and, you know, especially when I got to Juilliard, I spent a large period of my, my time there studying Mel Lewis. So listen, I've, I've got all I've checked out all the records. Kids are you know pretty people. You know all the Dad Jones charts, all that. Mm -hmm. um, but three and one, all that stuff. But we always want to use Mel Lewis. When to me, you know, I've, I've got tons of people that actually say Mel wasn't that great of a drummer. <laughs> um, I mean, no, really. Like like if you look at technically, yeah. I mean, some folks said that he dragged, that he didn't have good. I mean, like there's a lot of. I mean, and this is from I, I'm a fan of Mel Lewis. But these are like I because in my research, I talked to a lot of folks that played with them. I talked to a lot of people that like work with them. And there there's a lot of differing uh, points about him. Right. Mm -hmm. I I love his playing. And when I started studying Mel Lewis, he taught me the art of subtle setups. Mm. Right. Yeah, because yeah. when you check out like Harold Jones or Sonny Payne or Sonny Greer, like, you know, the Ellingtonian drummers, the, the Basie continuum of drummers you know, Butcher Miles to whomever, there's this thing of like, dot, do, 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 bang, 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 you know, it's like this, it's like fireworks. Right. Mel was hip, you know, ding, 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 bang, you know, it's like, like Mel would like have these, you know, pop, pop, bang, like he would just, it was like these really subtle Surgical strikes. Yeah, like that. I was like, oh, so you don't have to forecast that there's a fill coming up in twenty bars, right? <laughs> and so Mel, Mel, so Mel taught me that, and also he taught me how to have a touch with big band drumming because I, you know, I thought big band drumming had to be heavy, which, depending on the kind of rep you're playing, it can be. But 
Mel to me created a whole different philosophy of it. But I, I think that people reference him. And to me, he's like at the end of, he's like on the other end of the evolution. Mm -hmm. And before you get to him, there's all these people he was influenced by. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I think that's why, so it's never an, it's not an attack against him. It's just like, if we're going to talk about it, we got to, you know, we, we got to put stuff in context. Otherwise I think we will give people credit or sometimes more credit than they deserve. Even like me, there's people that, that watch my drumio and I've gotten these messages like, Oh my God, you're the most amazing thing. And I'm like, if you want to, I'll tell is the conversation I had with Steve Jordan, who is a mentor of mine. Mm -hmm. And I remember hanging out with Steve in the studio one day. And this is right around the time he had just won the Grammy for John Mayer continuum. And he was like riding on this, on this high. I mean, he was just killing, you know, they were, he was killing it. Yeah. And so I was like, Steve, I was like, man, you know, I love how musical you are. And I just love like, you know, I was just gassing them up, gassing them up. And he was like, uh, you ever check out, well, what's my man name? Um, Booker T and the MGs. Um, oh, Al Jackson Jr. Thank you. Yeah. So I was like, Steve, man, you know, I love how you orchestrated, you know, on John, you know, on, on stop this train on, on continuum. You know, he was like Ulysses, Al Jackson Jr. And I was like, what, what, what do you, he's like, if you want to study me, and you want to know the 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 root of what what makes me do what I do? Go study Al Jackson Jr. I spent the next three years studying Al. J- I went to the <laughs> Stax Museum in Memphis. I, I checked out all the you know Otis Redding, the the mu- stuff he music directed, all the yep. all the stuff. Um, and when I when I got to kind of the end of studying Al for two to three years, I mean I I, I went and started buying Rogers drums. I, started, <laughs> I mean I, I wanted I I wanted to know what he ate for breakfast uh-huh. and. When I came out the end of the rabbit hole, I understood that Steve Jordan is a modern day Al Jackson Jr. Mm-hmm. He literally like yep. er, like in every sense in every sense of the form, he is a he is a modern day uh, incarnation, but with his own thing. Like he, you know, but because Al was also a rocker, but he but if you look at Al's technique, it's very jazz centric, mm-hmm. very. You know, I mean, even the way he played those roles and, you know, some of you listen to some of those MG records um, and it's just phenomenal. The sound he's getting is really like the, the Booker T MG recordings are really like a bop drummer with, with rock sizes. Yep. Right. Yep. And then by the time he gets to, you know, the stuff with Otis Redding and, and all that, the, you know, the, the stack stuff is just more elevated, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so anyway, I say that to say, like, I hope people when they check me out or love what I do, they go back to my source, which is Lewis Nash and Herlin Riley and Kenny Washington and all these other guys. So I think for me, it's just the way I think in life is chronologically. If I like someone, I'm like, well, where did they come from? And then that's when you start getting some of the special things that, that make that person great. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, every, every great musician, um, is just aware of the fact that, like you said, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, they are we we are all standing on the shoulders of giants. And um, I think the way that you framed it in your video, uh, which was you you were basically saying, like, I am I am a spokesman for this tradition. I might have a couple things that I can point to that I do differently from anybody else or that maybe I invented. But by and large, I am presenting this knowledge and this art form 
that is a collective communal thing. I didn't invent anything. Absolutely. I'm I'm presenting this on behalf of this community. Yeah. Yeah, and I think and and it, and and it's I mean it's it's what you're doing, right? Like you're not like with your podcast, you're not just going after one genre, mm-hmm. right? Like you're like from what I get, you know, cuz I knew about you before um I heard you wanted to to speak. What I gather from you is like you look at drumming as kind of this this larger art form and you want to make sure that you touch or get drummers that represent all the varying touch points Mm -hmm. of that you know what i'm saying yeah so i think for me like that's what's so important because i will say that in 2023 that is becoming far and few between Mm -hmm. you're getting people that like i was watching somebody yesterday on instagram who great page they have a lot of followers and when i looked at they're playing i was like they don't really play the drum kit that well (laughs) but like and i mean i just mean from like a technical i'm like wow that the hands are sort of decent there's some there's some kind of disconnect between the independence between the limbs like there's there's some homework that needs to happen yeah there but they have coined a certain kind of content and as a result they're they're out there and that's why a lot of my content i try to bring it back to not me but to the source which is why every few weeks i'll just post a video of billy higgins you know, like, <laughs> that's it <laughs> you know so or you know like the, I, one day a couple i think a month ago i posted a video of idris muhammad every oh. even nate smith all the, they were just like yes you know in other words like we're part of this community yeah and in this community we all have identified who these elders and these masters are so sometimes we need to just show a little video of Roy Haynes to make all of us be like, are we are we still on the straight and narrow? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. that's that's what we're all trying to get to. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and so in this influencer stage that we're in, I think is 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 cool because not everybody has agency to their audience, but it's sometimes not cool because we're creating followers and sometimes we're not fully solidified in our own artistry. Man. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, but again, I you know, have it had not been for Instagram, had it not been for Dromeo, had it not been for Facebook and all these things, I nobody would probably even know me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why I'm like, you can't crap on it because there's beauty to it, which is why like I love you know the 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 video that we ref, that we keep referencing uh, the artist on Dromeo. I'm grateful for it because had that video never happened, they would have never came and got me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think. He he was a he was great because he is a, a brilliant drummer. He's virtuosic, and he opened up, which is what Drumio does. He opened up an incredible uh, sort of how do you say uh, Pandora's box mm-hmm. where people were like conversing. It's like the movie Whiplash, right? Everybody tells me they're like, "Oh my god, <laughs> have you seen that movie Whiplash?" And I'm like, "Oh, you know, uh, excuse me while I bark, right?" Yeah, yeah. But but what I love about Whiplash is that it opened up a conversation where all of a sudden the world was talking about jazz drumming. Absolutely. And it, it like I had, I had students, (laughs) I had students coming into lessons. Like I want to learn how to play that whiplash thing. And I'm like, well, okay, let's, we got to start at the beginning now. (laughs) Um, and like you said, if it, if it, if it inspires, if it inspires more people to play drums or inspires more people to listen to jazz, great. And, and same thing, you know, with, with my man on, on the drumio video, um, but I think those of us on the inside, uh, you know, allow our experience and the fact that we 
live in the culture and in the community to, um, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. It, it causes me to go dark on certain things. And, you know, I'm, I'm very fond of saying that the only part of my collegiate jazz experience that Whiplash got right was the part about not getting laid. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else is bullshit. That was extremely accurate. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it, it, you know, man, listen, I, I think that what I love about Drumeo and all these different resources is that, like, for instance, there's a lot of people I know in the jazz community. I haven't heard it, but I know there's a lot of folks that are like, man, Ulysses up there playing this Nirvana, man. But I will say there's now a bunch more people that are checking out my big band record that just came out because of that Nirvana video, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so to your point, you know, like I remember I was going to say when, with Whiplash, when that happened, I actually got invited on to Good Morning America because Ginger Z, the the host, she wanted, they, they, you know, Whiplash got nominated for an Oscar. The uh, the actor, the guy that played his instructor. Right. And, and he, he so won they the Oscar, J.K. Simmons, He right? won, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. He was yeah. fucking great. And so, oh, he was great. So anyway, so he, they wanted to do a whole special. So I got invited on Good Morning America to train Ginger Z because she wanted to play <laughs> a thing. It's actually, it, it's actually out there. So I say all that to say, like, sometimes we have to use these little, these win, these wins. Yes. Where, you know, for for three months, people were, like, coming up to me like, you're a jazz drummer. Is that, like, whiplash? And now people had context around what I did. Right. Um, same thing with, with the Nirvana. I'm like, I would have never dreamed in a million years that that a video that I did that got a million, how many ever million views would be for me playing some rock shit. I would have never, you know, <laughs> but, but from me doing that, it's now opening up the opportunity for me to go back and film this course where I'm going to get to talk about all the elders of this music. And these drummers are going to know who I am and want to take it from that. Right. So I think that that's where pop culture and this new social media world we have to lean into it because it is opening up opportunities for us that we would not have otherwise. And we have to be great. I mean, like you and I are sitting on here talking about Mel Lewis. When in the hell in 20 years has anybody outside of maybe 40, 50 people talked about Mel Lewis? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So we're getting and it's because of your platform and my platform. So we're getting opportunities to talk about, you know, Buddy Gilmore. I sent, I mean, he's in my book, but I've never had a chance to really talk publicly about what I've discovered from Buddy Gilmore, now we're going to get to talk about him. So I think these opportunities are great because it's, it's, it's giving culture, certain cultures, an opportunity to see the light of day. Yeah, yeah. And it, I'm, I'm sort of realizing that what, what, you're, what you're talking about is sort of being open to, to playing the game of the internet a little bit. Like, because like you have to you have to feed the beast of the internet a little bit in the form of red meat in the form of you know short clips in the form of the nirvana video like there is this kind of you know machine that you can feed and if you feed it a little bit you can use that momentum to point it back at what you want to point it at and sort of like use that platform to be the change you want to see on the drum internet <laughs> a little bit yeah i mean cuz here's the thing it's a blessing because before you and me would never even get talked to or seen if we didn't enter Modern Drummer magazine mm -hmm. or if we didn't play Modern Drummer you know, Festival. Right. And a lot of those uh, publications and entities, they're biased. 
Um, I have no problem saying it, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I get, you know, I have no problem speaking my mind because a lot of these folks didn't help me anyway. So, (laughs) so, 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 I mean, you know, I've been featured in modern drama a couple of times, but I mean, first of all, it's one of the most biased magazines. I'm like, you get 12 months out of the year and 11 of them are all featuring rock drummers. Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's no, I mean, there's funk drummers, there's punk rock drummers, there's rock drummers, there's metal drummers, there's ska drummers, there's reggae drummers, like Literally, you got to have Neil Pert was featured 20 times. Y'all couldn't feature Al Jackson Jr. once. Y'all couldn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, like you know, Dave Welkle, God bless him. He's been on the cover 25 times. We can't talk about, you know, Sonny Greer. We can't talk about Sonny Payne, who Dave would never exist if it wasn't for him. Right. What, has Mel Lewis ever been on the cover? Right. You know, and, and Dave, Dave Welkle and Neil Peart would say that. They would be like, absolutely. Take me know. off. Like, put Al Jackson Jr. on. Like, yeah, but 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 they don't want, you know, it, it's so I say so that's why I say what I say about like people like Modern Drummer and, and, and their whole entity is they're one sided. It's basically a group of people who they grew up with these people that were their idols, which great. But if we're going to talk about Modern Drummer, Modern and the word drumming is a global term. Mm-hmm. So where is the globalization in terms of representation? in your product because your representation is is focusing on about 10 percent of the of 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 who is actually out here playing their butt off on the drum right like they could literally feature a new person on the cover for the next 30 years and not even scratch the surface of all the cats that have been out here and i'm not saying i'm not saying that to say i need to be on the cover i'm saying that to say there's so many other people lewis nash has never been on the cover herlin riley you know uh, has jeff hamilton ever been on the cover you know, has Joey Barron, who's played more drums than anybody, been on the cover, right? <laughs> like, so, you know, uh, so I say that to say what the, going off on my deep end, what the internet and what 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 social media has done is we don't need drum, we don't need a modern drummer anymore. Right. Right? right. Like, if anything, you know, they're, you know, they're becoming antiquated because now folks are like just going straight to your page saying, who's next? Right, right. And I think that is, that to me is the power uh, that I love about the internet is that it's actually dethroning some of the establishment. Yes. And now, you know, Dromeo's coming up and saying, you can keep your magazine. Here's right. <laughs> coming up. Here's Ulysses. We're going to give everybody. <laughs> right. And, and I think, and I think that to me is, is great because we, if we, if we stay in the background, if we stay in the cubby hole, then, nobody's ever going to get the love. Right. Well, I think the other aspect of, you know, antiquated publications uh, for which modern drummer is the poster boy, you know, their, their, their purported, (laughs) their purported mission was, was, you know, to educate and highlight about drummers and drumming. And they did that to an extent, but really they like, it was a vehicle to sell gear. Right. Like the, the, the people who ended up on the cover with some exceptions, but generally, like the the cover people were pointed at selling gear and their sponsors and those full page ads in Modern Drummer, um, and uh, I think that you know to to your point, the the decisions about who ended up on the cover and who they featured were largely driven by sponsorship dollars and how much gear yeah, they could but, sell. Uh, yeah, but I, I, certain things I'm going to refrain from because I, 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 you know, you you have an incredible podcast, and I don't want to create trouble for you. But <laughs> <laughs> but what I will say is I think that's also complete BS 
you know, if, if, if there's also a bias there that they only represent certain people. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking about just the obvious, which is race. Let's talk about gender. Yeah. You know, yeah. can we look at how many how many times has Terry Lynn or, you know, Susie Ibarra or, you know, Sylvia Cuenca or Kimberly Thompson? You know, these I think few of them made it onto the cover. But what about Shirazette Tenen? What about Savannah Harris? What about I mean, there's all these incredible women through the years. You know, uh, Allison, um, what's my, my girl? Uh, I just, um, I just interviewed Allie her. Um, yeah, um, I, I, and I'm friends with her. I, I don't know why her name is Allison Miller. Thank you. You know, Allison oh, Miller. Jesus. Um, <laughs> Allison Miller has she ever has she ever been on the cover? You know, so I I'd say that to say I hear you, but also that's part of why, which is the whole other conversation. The drum industry has been really jacked up for years because. Even people who get endorsements or high-level endorsements or visibility with their endorsements have come from only a few genres. Like, I'm one of few, uh, along with others that I've been inspired by, like Carl Allen and others from the jazz industry, that have even been allowed to get into the endorsement game at a larger scale. You know, you thank God for Eric Harlan and, you know, Chris Daddy Dave or Jeff Tane Watts. They're like, there's certain people, but there's a large part of the jazz community that has been kept out of the endorsement game or they're like, you'll get a symbol company or stick company. But in terms of these, you know, signature products and folks that have all, you know, you know, like, like Dave, where you got a whole company sponsoring, you know, uh, an artist and giving them that visibility that that goes to the rock drummers, the fusion drummers, you know, they're the ones that get into these areas. Meanwhile, the drumming, like I said, on Drumeo, at the drumming world, modern drumming was built on the backs of jazz drummers. Mm-hmm. You can look at all these products, Zildjian, you know, Regal Tip, Vic Firth, Yamaha, they all were built on the backs of jazz and, and soul drummers. Yep. Yep. And then as the as the product, Gretsch, you know, Gretsch was built on the backs of, you know, Max Roach and all of those cats. Like, but then when when the brand breached a certain point of visibility, then rock and roll took over. And then the representation completely changed. Yeah. So that's a conversation that I think we have to have in and particularly in our industry is representation matters mm-hmm. from everybody. Mm-hmm. And if we're gonna have a conversation and start calling something it's like you, working drummer. It doesn't mean working drummers that look like this or sound like this. Yeah. It's like I'm going after working cats that are working. Right. So that is that is a variety of folks. So I think if we're gonna have that conversation um, of representation and call a magazine modern drummer or drum magazine or whatever, which are completely unbiased terms and statements, then where is where is the unbiased approach in the representation of who who gets featured in these publications? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm sure this is going to people going to be mad at me after this. but <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Or you may just edit it out. <laughs> no, I mean, if it's if it's any consolation, they're probably not going to be as mad at you about this as they some of them are about the Nirvana thing. So, you know, you're <laughs> I'm bat I'm batting 10 for 10. <laughs> <laughs> you've you've dealt with way worse already. <laughs> Uh, well, man, it was it was great to talk to you, and and look looking yeah. forward to seeing uh, the the other stuff that you do with with Drumeo and beyond. Um, and like I said, I, I I feel like you are uh, 
in you know uh, we didn't really get to it but you're you know a band leader in your own right you're out there concertizing and and playing with your group and making records um but your uh you know what you're doing with drumio and and online is like i said i think endeavoring to be the change that you would like to see on the internet and and in the drumming world in general so uh so good on you man thanks for talking thank you for having me man i'm honored and and thanks for you know i know lydia set us up uh you know shout out we got the new record coming out uh, Generation Y, uh, New Beat. So, yeah, man, it's in tribute to all the great drummers, Art Blakey, and, and those that are part of this. Uh, up, uh, they've upheld and created this art form that we call jazz drumming and jazz music. So yeah. thank you, man, for wanting to chat. Yeah. And, I mean, you mentioned Art Blakey. I, I did want to mention to you that, like, in, sure. in listening to some of your Generation Y stuff, like, it is so reminiscent of of mm. Blakey and you know I I studied under Bobby Watson in Kansas City. Oh nice. So he okay. you know after after Blakey he did the Horizon thing like what yeah. what you're doing with Generation Y like feels like that in all the best ways. So really hats off to you man. Thank you brother. I appreciate you so much man. There you go. Ulysses Owens Jr. Thanks to him for that talk and those lessons. The Drumeo videos we talked about are definitely worth a watch, and be on the lookout for that new course he mentioned. Also check out his latest release with Generation Y, entitled A New Beat. That'll be available January 19th. Next week, Matt Krauss will be talking with New York-based drummer and educator Brian Doherty, whose credits include Freedy Johnson and They Might Be Giants. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, play pretty, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.